0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Johnny Campbell, the CEO and co-founder at Social Talent. Johnny, you're very welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Um, A lot of people speak positively about you. Easy to see. I've watched some of your content before and and you're you're great on camera. And The business you're building is is, is quite cool too. Um, But I'd like to start by rewinding the clock um, to when you grew up in Dublin. I know that you went to secondary school in Rathgar, but I don't know if you grew up around the area. But my question is, what was life like growing up in Dublin? Any favourite stand-up memories, hobbies?
0: So I I grew up in Ballantir, um, which when I was a kid, you didn't tell people you're from Ballantir. You said, Dundrum or Rathfarnham. And uh, by pure accident, we ended up in in Rathgar. Um, My older brother ended up changing primary schools in his first week. And uh, we went to primary school in Rathgar and then ended up going to secondary school in Rathgar. And uh, by the time I went, we couldn't afford it. But I had a, a secondary school grant, and I got a scholarship part scholarship in to, to school. So uh, I probably grew up the kid who came from the neighborhood that nobody else came from in that school. Um, I was a, a, a Catholic kid who would go on to be an atheist in a Protestant school in a Jewish area. And so <laughs> school, it, it did influence because I thought Irish society looked like that, that we all, you know, equally came from these different backgrounds, which wasn't quite, quite the same. Uh, but I grew up in Ballantir, which. Uh, I suppose was, it was an up-and-coming working class area. You know, it wasn't mm. quite working class. There's a lot more working class areas in Dublin the band here. Um, But it was, for the south side, it was probably not not the poshest. Uh, but very proud people, great background. And I uh, I started work when I was 11 years of age. Uh, Ree and I worked in the local video store. Uh, the two women around the store felt sorry for me. I used to hang around the video store. We couldn't afford a video player. And uh, I used to hang around and watch videos. And they asked me, do you want to help? So I started my first job there at 11. And by 13 or 14, I had seven employers. I was merchandising for Premier Dairies. I was uh, the milk company. I was doing for the bread round. I had Chris companies. I was working before school. I'd cycled to school to work seven in the morning in Quinsworth, Grove do bread, milk, cycle on to school and cycle after work to other jobs and then work the nights and then work weekends. And so I had an ethic of work, I didn't have actually many hobbies. A massive food, movie buff always have been. Um, but I kind of loved working, to be honest with you. And I love movies combined in, in with the, uh, with the, the, the uh, the job I was doing, I guess, one of the mm-hmm. jobs I was doing. So, so that would kind of define me from a family of four kids. <clears throat> and uh, we, we, we had a good, we we a decent uh, upbringing. We didn't have much money as a family. So things were tight. It was the, 80s and early 90s there wasn't a whole lot of money going around so when i say things were tight we weren't alone right as you know in Mm. dublin or in ireland we were a pretty poor country back then um but you made the most of it and i had income personally uh, as a kid which was unheard of i could buy stuff in the tuck shop uh in school i could buy cds i could win the bus to town the weekends and that kind of defined my growing up who
1: a question I like to ask is around influence and impact. So I'm, I'm curious to know, people can usually point to a, a, a close friend, an acquaintance, uh, a teacher, a parent, a family member who had a positive impact on young Johnny that helped him become the person he is today or, you know, contributed to the person he's
0: become today. Does any one, two or three people spring to mind for you? Several. Um. So growing up... Um... My father became an alcoholic in the 80s and my mother had to become the, the strong person in the family. She's great to work and work serious hours to afford to pay our mortgage and keep food on the table uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He ran his own business. So I, I kind of was influenced um, in a positive way from my father running his own business. I always, you know, my dad had uh, laborers. He's a cabin contractor and he had laborers working for him and um, I'd work, uh, work with them on summer holidays, rolling tar, raking tar, lifting and stuff. And, uh, then my mother would go out, went out to work and I helped her. i going out to work. And I saw the ethic she put into work. So to me, hard work was just what you did. And that was a very positive influence, but also, I guess from my father, I had this aspiration to work for myself. And when I went to work in the video store, I worked for two entrepreneurial women who ran a video store in the 1980s, which was unusual. Right. And they'd set it up by themselves. Um, and i kind of from then on i've always had this positive um perspective from working for women i worked for apart from one job in my life i've only ever worked for entrepreneurial women and i had that strong uh uh, mother who was out working with an unbelievable work ethic and and again uh not to discount my father's kind of influence in running his own business so when i grew up i was always going to run my own business it was just what i was going to do and to me my job was going to be having a suitcase living the dream was I was going to earn a million uh, and, and, and do it by, by going to work with the suitcase. I didn't really know much else beyond that, but that was a dream. And I even had a little suitcase as a kid that was my kind of toy. And I'd play games with my mates where we, you know, our, our creative games where we owned a TV company. We owned all these different things. Uh, I also did with, with my buddy on the road growing up as a kid. You know, I would go around with him and we'd sell stuff door-to-door, door in a cart. I set up a shop in my back garden. I go down to the local shop and buy bottles of Coke and chocolate bars and charge, a markup in my shop in my back garden with the kids in the neighborhood. I was always trying to create money. So I was surrounded by good people like that who were out there working really hard trying to create money. And I just thought that's the way everyone had to do it. Mm. What are your parents' names? Uh, Jonathan Robin.
1: Shout out to uh, Janet and Robin for for the impact they've had on Johnny, because you've impacted millions of people's lives today. And part of that's probably come from the uh, ethics they've installed it in you. Um, You studied BCom at at UCD, Business and Commerce, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, And I'm curious to know, why did you choose business? And I want to go back a little further because I watched an interview that you did. I can't remember who the chap was, but you, cho- you said in around like junior cert the leaving cert, you had to choose, you know, four mandatory subjects and you chose a lot of business subjects, like business, economics, accountancy, maybe. Uh, I know you chose physics as well. I also chose physics, but I dropped out of it a couple of things. My dad had an influence on the business subject I chose. I don't know why I picked physics. Um, but if you look back further, can you kind of pinpoint what led you to picking studying business,
0: both for the leaving search subjects and then going on to UCD? I'll go back to the briefcase. My job was gonna be having a briefcase in business. I didn't really know how to get there apart from do business subjects. Um, Genuinely, that, that was it. It wasn't anything more complicated than that. The only reason I did physics was in the school I was with, uh, they were kind of a feeder school into Trinity, which is very science oriented. And I was told you have to do a science subject. Like you can't do a leave insert cert without, without a science subject. Which I think is bad advice in hindsight. Uh, but I picked a science subject and I physics was the one that I enjoyed you know, the physical world and how it all works and also that that kind of stuff interested me. I loved physics, did well in physics, uh, but I basically would have done another business subject if I could have instead of that, because again, I wanted to do work in business and I didn't understand more than that. I didn't have a definition beyond that. I didn't understand any other route into business. And so therefore they were the business subjects I chose. Um, And then I chose BCOM because it was the generic business degree. Again, I perhaps would have gone a different route if I had more focus, but that's the only way I saw or knew to get into business. Fair enough. Um, having
1: graduated with that degree, you went on to do a master's. I'd like to rewind the clock to oh, 2003, I think it is, when you started. Uh, I could butcher the name of this, which is why I wrote it down. At Create Financial Search and Selection, um, you, you finished up there in a management role. um which was bought by Imprint, which I think is now Morgan & McKinley. You then moved to the Grand Cayman for two years as operations manager. I referenced that because that's another management role. And I'm curious to know, was there any key lessons you learned from your time in a management-led role? Did it help you improve any skills? Focusing on the skills that help you improve that you leverage today in your role as a CEO. And was there kind of maybe one one or two things that you felt you did well in those management roles has helped you and contributed to your success in your current day role as CEO of Social Talent?
0: So I started in recruitment in 98, became a manager for the first time in 99. Mm. And I think I only really learned how to manage two years ago. I've begun to learn how to manage probably two, three years ago, if I'm being honest, Rain. Um, so I was a manager. I had six or seven people working under me back in 2000 when the kind of dot com uh, uh, bubble burst, if you like. And mm. uh, it really annoyed me i i, I loved recruiting i love the hustle i love selling i loved all that but my job by the time i had six people reporting into me and i was only 22 23 i was just sitting in meetings every week reviewing their work asking how they were giving out to them because they hadn't done enough work weren't on target all this crap and then i had to let them go i had to let the first couple of team members go in 2000 which was, was horrific because they were my friends you know um at the same time and I kind of hated management then at that point. I took an individual contributor role uh, in sales in Fujitsu Siemens for a year, went back to Act right and as an individual contributor and then built up to a management role. But like I think maybe I had two people to report to me, maybe. And it was a very flat structure, so it wasn't truly management in that sense. Um and I went to Cayman Islands and I had to I managed a team and uh we all worked for a dragon of a woman, um, who was just a horrible, horrible person. And uh she was really tough to work for, and uh, I had to try and motivate the team. And again, it was hard. So it didn't inspire me into management. And it kind of turned me against management. Um, I wanted to develop products. I wanted to get out there. I wanted to do all the things I was good at. But I kind of thought I just was a crap manager. And through the experiences I had, it, I wasn't comfortable with management. wasn't really into it. And only really as social talent grew, I um, and probably the pandemic was was one of the big catalysts, but actually just before the pandemic, I had a come to Jesus moment where I realized that I was the obstacle. And I looked around me and I was like, why are not people working hard enough, doing the right thing? Why is not happening? Um, I, I kind of realized it was me and I wasn't enabling them to deliver. I wasn't supporting the people around me to deliver. I wasn't building expertise, building competencies. I was, again, relying on my own hard work, which. I'd done for 20 years and it had served me well to kind of just work really hard and have the ideas myself you can't scale a business that way and that's not what management or leadership is leadership is uh, developing finding and developing others and achieving scale through the abilities of others by teaching them inspiring them motivating them to do things you get scale you develop a leadership team of six people they have six people their their leaders have six people all of a sudden you can build massive businesses and do really powerful things only so far you can go as an individual. I think a lot of car- Irish companies maybe fall into this trap. I was there for a long time where you, all you're doing is, 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 is working really hard yourself. You don't really enable others to do it. So I'm beginning to do that the last couple of years. The journey's far from over, but I kind of look at you know 25 years into my career going, I'm really excited about the potential leadership. Really enjoyed the last two years of leadership development. I'm excited about my continued journey in leadership. So it isn't something you just become and then you tick the box and move on from my experience. There's many levels to it. There's many people out there who are managers and leaders, but they're not really. And they haven't maybe had that moment. They discover, aha. And I maybe have, will have another moment in a couple of years, Reem, I go, Jesus, back in 2021, I was having that chat with Reem. I, I thought I was doing leadership right. God, I wasn't. I, there's this other thing. That excites me. I'm interested to find more, right? Rather than going, oh crap, maybe I'm not doing it right now. I'm delighted to know there's more. I don't want to run out of, of road in terms of what being a great leader is. And I think that's that's the exciting part of the journey. There's a book I've read. It's called 13 Leadership Blind Spots. And, and I'm asking
1: this question because y- you've openly admitted that you've only really become a decent manager or become improved on over the last two or three years. And bl- blind spots are things that can like, hold uh, otherwise healthy business back. Things like not building the bench, not paying attention to lead generation, uh, not onboarding properly. There's 13 or 14 of them. Um, Looking at how far you've come over the last few years, uh, when you look at other businesses, are there any blind spots that you think managers or leaders or, yeah, managers or leaders consistently run into that if they were to just improve in that area, their business would would grow substantially,
0: loads. And I can only share with you some of the ones that I've seen uh, in in my business, and I've, mm. I've maybe seen in some others. Uh, strategy. It's a word that I was first I first learned about in nineteen ninety eight, my first year of commerce. I only really am beginning to understand in the last couple of years, um, and you know, people talk about the strategic process or a strategy, particularly smaller Irish businesses. And particularly if you haven't worked for a big multinational, who have a strategic process that you learn. And there's a lot to be said for going to work for a big organization, learning the kind of ropes of these basics and then bringing them to your own smaller business. Because if you haven't done that, you miss you miss the boat, right? Because no one's teaching you. When you're an entrepreneur, you kind of don't have any formal teacher and, and you, you, you absolutely need it more than anything else. So understanding strategy, what is it? I um, had, to, had to develop a strategic plan, execute that strategic plan. That's really important, right? Because people kind of, in my experience, confuse, and I did this, confuse a vision or a goal for a strategy. And I used to say, my strategy is to get to X. Like, no, 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 no. That's the goal. Strategy is how are you actually going to break it down and actually achieve it? What are you going to do differently and change? And, and that, was, that was something I came to late. And I think many entrepreneurs um, struggle with because they haven't had that formal background. I think um, there's a blind spot around uh, compassion and empathy in people um, uh, with a lot of folks, and particularly in Ireland. Uh, unfortunately, I see it more and more in the businesses in Ireland. We're, we're not as progressive as we should be. I see brilliant companies overseas who really have embraced a different view of their people. Thankfully, I think in the last year and a half in Ireland, we're getting there faster with the pandemic in terms of the blind spot around, you know, people, you can't just shout at them. You know, your job is to motivate them. And if they're not doing their job, it's your fault. You either hire the wrong person, you didn't give them the right motivation to give them the right tools. It is not their fault, right? And, you know, if you made the wrong hire, your job is to manage out performance management is that other piece. Um, a lot of what we try and do in leadership, and particularly if you do lean towards the empathetic understanding perspective of people, you can go too far and you, you lose performance management. You become all about, well, I've got to support people and help them and excite them and give them incentives. You do have to have consequences for not performing and not doing your job. And not having performance management undermines your business, undermines your high performance as well, and demotivates them. So I think that's another, another aspect that's important. Your business metrics, understand the business metrics, probably the last I, 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 I'd lean on. And this comes from, we're an Irish business, a SaaS business in Ireland. And we lose out, um, those of us in the kind of SaaS world and probably other industries as well, you lose out because the community isn't big enough. You know, if I'd been born in San Francisco or Berlin or London, it's just stuff you'd know more about the type of business you're in. And it's stuff that other people have learned, documented, and there's playbooks to how to do things. And I went through years not knowing those playbooks because of where I am, because the ecosystem isn't strong enough here. It still isn't strong enough here. And I do my best to try and share that with others to go, there's a playbook. Like you talk about sales there's a playbook for enterprise sales, It's the ABM playbook, there's a playbook for SMB or consumer sales, it's a different playbook. And, and too often people just don't know that. I'm not sure it's taught today in academia, in schools, but if it's not taught, who's Who's showing sales leaders, entrepreneurs, what the playbooks are? Because you can fast track the crap out of, out of your learning if somebody just shows you that and you, and you trust in it and execute that.
1: When you, when you said performance management, and I was surprised by your answer because the first thing that sprung to mind for me was around the topic of, and I, I, I've i been fortunate to see it a few times, not as much as other managers because I'm not as old as them, but um, learned helplessness, which is where, you uh, kind of just consistently give your employees the answer when they come looking for it, instead of saying something along the lines of, um, "If I wasn't here, what would you do?" Or like, you know, pretend I wasn't here and come back to me in ten minutes, and then we can discuss it. Which is forcing them to continue, like, think for themselves. Um, yeah, there's, uh, but there's, there's, there's definitely tons out there, and, and I, I can, I can agree with you on, on the uh, Irish ecosystem. Uh, you, you, you've mentioned the briefcase twice now, um, and I've brought up Cayman. The uh, yeah came was it Cayman Islands, Cayman Islands yeah Cayman Islands yes um and you said in a uh, previous interview you wanted to be a millionaire but moving to Cayman Islands softened you can you explain what you meant by that?
0: I wanted to be a millionaire at all costs. So back to again drive as a kid the the the, the strength that got me started was um, the ability to work hard. right? I, I back myself. I have backed myself all my life. Um, uh, just a sidetrack, when I came back in the 2008 recession, set up our first company with my business partner, Vince, and the world went to shit. And um, I had no money. I backed myself to keep going with our business. And I said, I could deliver pizzas. I could work more hours than anybody else could work if I needed to, to survive and make the business work. I back myself. I'll get up earlier. I'll I'll sleep less. I'll I'll put more hours in. And so, when you look at that, I backed myself to be a millionaire in my twenties by just sheer graft and grit. I was willing to sacrifice all the other things to get there. Uh, In terms of you know, I I had said to my wife, you know, we'd uh, my girlfriend at the time, you know, it's all about the business, and I would sacrifice or, or delay having children, having family, doing other things, going out because I wanted to make sure that I got there. And Cayman Islands changed my perspective. My wife and the Cayman Islands changed my perspective to go, hang on a second, there's more to life. What are you doing it for? Why would you work 90 hours a week until you're 60 just to accumulate billions? Like, so what? Like, is that the prize? That you got to a goal of loads of money, but you're miserable, your family hates you, your kids hate you, your wife, third wife hates you. You're like, what's the point? So that's when I, what i mean by soft and I, I i had perspective to go it's not the end of the world it's not to be on end all i should say in terms of uh, money of course it, it, it's a big driver for all of us you know we'd all like more of it um but you have to have balance and uh, you know in my book what the race was to be the richest that was my measure of the success i would have could i be the richest person in the world and um there's a there's a rudimental song from a couple of albums ago where it opens with an interview with bob marley and the interviewer is interviewing him, saying, "So, uh, so you're a rich man, are you?" And Bob Marty says, uh, "Rich, rich. What do you mean by rich? How do you define riches? There's lots of things being rich?" And he said, "I have love and I have friends, essentially. As and these are the things that make me rich. This was is what makes me a rich man. And I'm, I'm more on that line these days in terms of what the balance is. That there's there's better definitions of rich than just material wealth."
1: I like that answer. Um... I'd like to actually, before we go into this, you're now the CEO of Social Talent. Rather than me kind of tell the audience what that is, if they've not heard of it, I'll hand the mic to you to give your 30, 60 second commercial.
0: So, Social Talent is the learning platform for hiring. So, we are LinkedIn learning our master class for organizations who give a crap about talent. So, organizations that invest in their talent invest in social talent. So, we teach organizations how to interview how to hire, uh, how to onboard and develop their staff and their teams. We do this on scale organizations um, like Disney, uh, Uber, United Health Group, Standard Chartered Bank, uh, tons of organizations over the world. We teach the business how to hire and develop their talent better.
1: And one thing I'd like to talk about on the topic of what you do is uh, retention. uh, Because it's a hot topic at the moment, um, whether you look at, you know, indigenous or companies compete with the big tech companies for for talent. Um, You've got a formula for holding on to your best people, which is hiring plus onboarding plus engagement equals retention. Can we take a minute or two just to touch on each of them? So when it comes to uh, the hiring process, is there there one or two things that you think uh, is vital not to overlook?
0: So in in the hiring process, first of all, we need to define what you're looking for right sounds obvious um too often we just rip out a job spec and and go for it but what do you actually need right um and don't be guided just by the first person you meet as well what do we need in the role what what, what does success look like so for example several years ago um we were moving our model from doing smb sales to enterprise sales yes we were yet we were still hiring people who were probably coming from an smb sales background whereas it took us a while through bad hires to be honest with you to realize that we needed to hire people who understood enterprise sales. So low volume, high value, complex sales where, the, where no one person had the decision that it was a, a group of decision makers and doing it internationally. Just a different type of role. And when you're when you hiring correctly, it's not how good the person is, they're gonna really struggle to do that because they haven't done it before. Um, and if you intentionally want to train someone because you've got a good training organization, you've got a, a support structure that can train somebody great But not hiring the right type of person and making that really clear decision about what you're hiring for at the start can really make it difficult. So I think that's probably the most critical thing to think about. The second is on top of that skills, background, experience, ability, perspective, it's understanding the values of your business, right? Don't hire assholes. And assholes is defined by what is not going to work in your organization and really holding yourself dear to that. And that's easier said than done. Um, I've said it for a long time, but we... We hired people that weren't um, aligned to our values right they were let's say you hire may when you know that that's not going to work in your organization and everyone's going to hate the may and they're a big bidder, but that's just disastrous for everybody else and then they start quitting because they don't like working with this team member and they don't like the business anymore because it hires people like that uh, and back to performance management you let people like that get away with it you know act like assholes in your business so Really, it is just understanding exactly what you're hiring for and then really nailing the values. People call it culture fit, which is the wrong phrase to use because it's been, it's been um, misused in the last few years. But it's understanding what actually works in your organization. What are the important things that make the team work well? And then building an assessment for both of those. you got to get those right at the hiring stage.
1: When it comes to onboarding, I'm going to assume that uh, a week of training and then assigning an internal guide is just not enough.
0: It's not, right? And it starts uh, several weeks before you join the company, right? Because when you quit your old job and you agree to join a new job, it's a huge deal, right? It's like breaking up with your partner and immediately hooking up with somebody else. Huge risk. Did I make the right, wrong decision? Leaving them, going with these people? There's an unbelievable amount of uncertainty. And we leave people for eight, 12 weeks on their own between jobs to, to, to wallow in this, to worry about that. So it starts with pre-boarding, which is engaging the person post-contract signing all the way to um, them starting. Um, having managers check in with them, touch base with them, get them information about your company, get them set up. And these days in, an, in a more distributed world, send them their laptop, give them their access, um, get them on some training, You know, invite them to out, out with the team. You can be much more deliberate in your pre-boarding. The onboarding process typically takes six months. And there are several things that are important there. Yes, there's the how do things work about this around here, which is what most people just focus on, a week's kind of basic induction training. But it's about how can you set the person up to build relationships in the team? How do you teach the person how to network internally? Because that's gonna be critical to their future success, to get projects over the line, to get people to help them in the future. You're gonna to have to teach them about your business, to be passionate about that business, about your values. How do you live, live and breathe those values? you have to hold their hand. You're not getting much back from them in the first three months. You're giving more. But slowly but surely over the three to six months, you're starting to get more back or you're getting in the middle. And by the end of six months, they're actually contributing to the business. But You've got to commit to the fact that you've got to throw yourself into that person. you got to basically, as, a, as an organization, you've got to give all the way for the first three months, begin to get stuff back in the next three months, and then only maybe after six months do you get something. So people don't think about pre-boarding and onboarding To me, in the right way, is that real investment to get get that person embedded and hopefully at six months, super passionate, motivated and clear about what they want. Clear direction is probably the other thing that people miss. You join a company, it's like, what do you want me to do? What's the measurement of success? People just fart around for weeks, not knowing what they're meant to be doing. And with no measurement as to, am I doing a good job? That clarity is really important as well.
1: Two two final questions for you, Johnny. Uh, To finish off that equation that you spoke about, uh, I'd like to go to the last part, which is hiring plus onboarding plus engagement. Um, Can you share one thing that someone can do here? And I'm gonna reckon that the likes of L&D is involved in recognition as well.
0: Ask people what they're thinking, what they want, Um, and give them responsibility to do stuff. It's not rocket science, right? There's a reason why companies like Qualtrics and others have boomed these uh, kind of survey and feedback companies over the last few years. Just stop and ask people, what do you think? Right, you might have a strategy and you're about to execute it. Stop, bring your team in. What do you think before we go with this? What would you do differently? And Get your feedback on that. We have this challenge, you know, ask the team. Yes, your leadership team might have a clear plan. Everyone's bought into it, but stop, involve people. It slows down some of the processes, but it's unbelievably powerful to engage people, right? It's not about bringing them away on holidays or giving them fucking parties and this kind of stuff, right? That stuff's nice, but really it's about saying, Rean, what do you think? What would you do? And genuinely listening to that and going, that's interesting. Let's take that feedback and adjust our plan. And then coming back to Rean, critically and going, do you remember you gave us that feedback? We're going to use it in this way. Or listen, we're not going to use it, but here's why. But I really appreciate your feedback and I want it next time as well. It's not rocket science. But that's probably the number one thing you can start doing to get better engagement.
1: Final question for you is if you were the final decision maker in adding a mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why?
0: Ooh, geez cheapers. Um behavioral science. Um, I've been a big fan of behavioral science, which is the science of how people behave, right? How they think, how they make decisions. And the kind of core book on that is Danny Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. Uh, which is just won the Nobel Prize for it, um, himself and his uh, late uh, co-author, um, uh, Amos Tversky. But it basically describes how the human mind works, how we make decisions. And in nearly every job, we need to influence people. Um, sales, recruiting, management, leadership, investing. Influence is really important. And understanding why people, how people make decisions, why they make certain decisions, is one of the most vital things you'll ever learn. And why we're not teaching it at the youngest possible age, baffles me.
1: Johnny, Campbell, it's been an absolute pleasure spending the last 30, 35 minutes getting to know you a little bit more. I uh, Hope the audience has enjoyed this as much as I have. CEO and co-founder of Social Talent. Links to everything you spoke about will be left below. But for today, thanks for being my guest.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for having me, shoot.
1: Beautiful morning. the my morning, baby.